Hello and welcome to Poco Ponders. I'm your host, Sarah Poco, and today we are pondering imaginary friends. Now, chances are when you were little, you had an imaginary friend or companion that you talked to, you played with, or maybe even had tea time with. Uh, I had several imaginary friends growing up, all with very distinct personalities and traits. And while I now attribute that to watching a bit too much anime, uh, creating imaginary friends is considered a normal childhood phenomena. That being said, not everyone has an imaginary friend growing up. In fact, when I told my colleague about today's topic, he looked at me a little weird and said he's never had an imaginary friend. So this got me thinking, why exactly do we create imaginary friends? Does environment play a role? And how does it go on to affect adulthood? Um, our guest today is a leading expert in researching imaginary companions in children. And Professor Amrita in the Department of Psychology at the University of Oregon. Please welcome Dr. Marjorie Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Sarah, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I've been, I'm from Nova Scotia, and uh, but I've been working at the University of Oregon for uh, since 1985 and retired a few years ago. My research has been on uh, the development of imagination in children with a particular focus on the creation of imaginary friends and more recently the creation of imaginary worlds, which is related, a related phenomenon for, of slightly older children. Nice. Now, I find this research um, very fascinating. So why did you get into it exactly? Not many people would think of like researching like why we create imaginary friends. Well, my daughter Amber had one when she was three, and uh, his name was Michael Rose. And when she talked about Michael Rose, it was just like another person, just like anybody. And I actually didn't know that Michael Rose was imaginary, but I wanted to figure out who is Michael Rose. Uh, so I asked at the daycare and they didn't know. And uh, so I asked her a few more questions and learned that Michael Rose had a barn full of giraffes and he had all kinds of fantasy pictures. And I realized he was imaginary. And I thought that was just so fascinating. And then when I became a psychologist some years later, people were talking at that time about how children uh, were confused about fantasy and reality and that uh, their emotional reactions to scary fantasy. And I started to wonder, well, when children have an imaginary friend, do they think it's real or do they understand that this is something they've made up? Hmm. That's very interesting. So could you explain to us what exactly is an imaginary friend? You know, it sounds like a straightforward question, but it's not because <laughs> the definition, you know, really uh, affects what you're going to say about it. So I think of it as an invented character that is um, talked about or interacted with on a regular basis. Sometimes for me, they can be based on an object, not just invisible, but for other people, sometimes they want to just focus on the invisible ones. But that that's a, a difficult distinction to make because sometimes children create a, a really elaborate world around a stuffed animal that they talk to and listen to what does the animal have to say, sort of like Calvin and Hobbes. So if you had a child like Calvin come into the lab, you'd want to categorize Calvin as having an imaginary friend, even though it's based on a stuffed tiger, Hobbes. So, but making that distinction, it makes it a little muddy because, you know, many children have imagined, have stuffed animals. So you don't want to consider every single stuffed animal to be an imaginary friend, uh, I don't think. So, so it becomes complicated. And also even talking to children about their imaginary friends, you have to be so careful because sometimes they will 
think, oh, that's a good idea. And they make one up right on the spot. So uh, figuring out what is an invented character that plays an important role in their everyday lives is uh, can be uh, more tricky than you think. Interesting. So why do we create imaginary friends then? For lots of reasons. So in the past, people have tended to think it's some kind of problem related reason like a child who's too shy to make real friends or is a little confused about fantasy reality or has some kind of emotional problem you know it fills in some kind of gap in their lives but the recent research has showed that that really for many many children is primarily because it's fun to do they their imaginations are running rampant when they're you know starting at two three years old and uh, in fact the preschool period has been called the high season of imaginative play and and so um you can create someone to fill all kinds of functions for you just if if your favorite um person that you like to uh, play with at daycare isn't there you can create an imaginary version just to keep you company and can continue the play if you have secrets uh you can tell the imaginary friend if you um, are thinking about something, mulling it over, like uh, what does it mean to have be uh, have be bad, get punished? You can you sort of work that out with your imaginary friend and think about it that way. Uh, there are all kinds of things that it can fill the it can uh, function in many many different ways, and I think for most of them, they have many functions, but primarily fun and companionship. Nice. Okay. So what age does it usually start? Well, I, th I would say like four is probably the most common age, but uh, they will, you know, even two-year-olds, two-and-a-half-year-olds have been known to have imaginary friends. I knew one child who at two-and-a-half started picking up imaginary dolphins, <laughs> little dolphins, Aww. and holding them in her hand. And um, so they can start pretty amazingly early when you think, these are children who are learning about the real world and all the things there are to learn about the real world. And here they are making things up, you know, completely themselves. Um, we thought that that they were probably gone mostly by seven or eight, but when we interviewed children at seven, we found a lot of children had them then as well. So I would say they're most common in the preschool period, but they can continue on. And some people continue on, you know, for a long time and even make an imaginary world for their uh, pretend friend to live in. All right. So what age should this stop at then? Is there an age it should stop at? <laughs> so you're using the word should. So that's, <laughs> yes. is there something wrong? And I've had so many people say to me things like, um, okay, so it's all right for, children young children to have an imaginary friend but what if a teenager has an imaginary friend what time yeah you know, what age is it not okay anymore it's a sign of problems and uh i tend to say never but um i did some research looking at that issue in particular because i i wanted to know okay how often do like 12 year olds have imaginary friends and is it a sign of problems at that older age because a lot of at that time people were saying okay it's all right if you're young uh, you're a little child but if you're 12 and you still have an imaginary friend that's got to be a red flag right so so we did a study with um uh 12 year olds and we were looking to see if having an imaginary friend at that age was a red flag so 
we uh, used a, a sample that was a very high risk sample. So, because we wanted to come up with lots of problems and see if the, those problems were more associated with having an imaginary friend. So these were children, there were 150 of them, around 150, I'm forgetting the exact number, that had been chosen from by their teachers as sort of least likely to succeed. These were kids where there are all kinds of poverty and problems in the home and um, they were getting into trouble at school. They were flunking at school. They weren't doing well. So these are children who are not doing well. And we went in to see, okay, how many of them have imaginary friends and what's going to happen down the road with these kids? And uh, we did find that um, a, sm a small number, relatively small number, I think there were 13 of them of that group had imaginary friends. And then uh, we looked at them at age 18. And what we found, so in this study, doing well in the study, we had a fairly low bar. You had to have finished high school, uh, not, not be using illegal drugs, mm -hmm. uh, not have a history of police arrest, and not have a history of mental illness. So we looked to see if, how many children were able to, you know, meet that those uh, um, that those markers. And what we found is that if if you had an imaginary friend when you were 12, you were much more likely to be doing well at age 18. Oh. So it was the exact opposite. It wasn't a red flag. If anything, it was a sign of resilience. And we're not saying that it's causal that having the imaginary friend was what did it for these children to help them through that difficult time in their life. But um, but it was associated with good outcomes, not bad. So I would say that, you know, for a lot of people, having a magic friend is a way to deal with an issue. And for, for um, like I said, it's mostly fun and companionship. But if there is a, a, an issue in your life, this is your imagination that something's available to you, even when you're, you know, very young. That's such a cool study. Uh, I'm kind of curious. So why why the criteria of police arrest? Does that play a role in creating imaginary friends? No, we were just looking to see uh, how are these children doing? And mm. it was kind of a broad stroke. How are they doing? And uh, are, they, uh, are they getting into trouble? Are they doing okay in school? Are they? And so these were the, the markers that um, the people who were, it's actually part of a, a much larger study looking at resilience and, um, and risk in children. And so they use these markers as uh, sort of, you know, doing better than if you're not, if you're not making doing well in, in school or you're getting into trouble with police and you're, uh, having problems with mental illness and using drugs, you know, that's, that's not, that was not considered a good outcome in the study. Okay. And this kind of segues into the next question. Um, um, you mentioned, you know, if you know, they're having troubles at home, if they're doing well in school, if they're getting in trouble with the law. So does the environment that a child is brought up in, does it affect the creation of uh, an imaginary friend? Yeah, the environment's going to have something to do with it, for sure. I mean, when people talk about how to encourage imagination, they talk about ha children having... Um, some kind of unstructured time, which is, you know, a lot of kids don't, I mean, they're pretty scheduled up, but unstructured time where uh, that you can do what you want to do yourself. And then um, to have a supportive adult and uh, and some simple props, like it doesn't, they don't have to be complicated to, um, to promote imagination. So I think children who, um, 
who are only children or firstborns are somewhat more likely to have imaginary friends. And I think that has to do with time, how much time they have on their own. Uh, and so, so that's one thing, but, but, um, and, and I don't want to get too much into, I, I, to focus too much on, you know, as a, re, uh, a response to an issue, um, although it, it can be in a response to an issue, but the issue can be nobody's around to play with right now. And I really want somebody to play with, uh, it's not a, you know, a serious issue, but something that the child wants to deal with. Um, so environment does have, play a role. We have found um, that even in families where they're not that excited about their child having an imaginary friend, that sometimes, lots of times children still have them. So a supportive adult is good, but it, lots of kids just do this because it's what's available to them to process what's going on in their lives. Okay. So what about children that don't have any imaginary friends. What does this say about them? Yeah, so it's interesting that you ask that question because parents sometimes are worried that their child has an imaginary friend and some parents are worried that their child doesn't have an imaginary friend. Uh, <laughs> does this mean my child is not imaginative or my child is, you know, have, they're wondering about that. And um, I think it's just one way that, that children use their imagination. So. I don't think that it means they're, um, you know, at a, a serious disadvantage. When we have we've looked at the characteristics of children who do and don't have imaginary friends, and uh, mostly on most tasks they look very similar. It's not like the children with imaginary friends look wildly different than other kids. We when we do find a difference, it does seem to benefit the children who have imaginary friends. We found on some kinds of creativity tasks they're they're, uh, they do better. Um, they, in some, um, in some studies, they seem to uh, be able to empathize uh, with other people more, take the perspective of another person a little mm -hmm. more. Sometimes they have advanced language skills. Um, so so they're, it's not a negative thing to have an imaginary friend, but it doesn't mean that you don't have an imagination if you don't have one. And there are other for things that children do. So for example, um, a lot of children, especially boys, like to have a pretend identity. So these are the little boys running around in capes pretending to be Superman. Um, <laughs> that's not having an imaginary friend. We call it having a pretend identity. And it's, but it's very imaginative. So these children are amazing. And uh, so there are lots of ways to, um, you know, play with your imagination to come up with imaginative uh, activities. Having an imaginary friend is one of them. Nice. So did you ever have an imaginary friend yourself? I don't think so, but I, I don't know if I would have been categorized or not. A lot of people don't remember, you know, like mm. when you look at adults, you know, they don't really remember or they'll say, or they, say they will say something like, well, um, I did, but I don't remember my imaginary friend, but my mom does. And sometimes parents are the, um, they re keep the memories because they think it's really cute and, you know, all the things that the imaginary friend used to do. Uh, riding on top of the car to go on family outings, uh, you know, all kinds of funny things. And, um, but, but, you know, when, when you think about it, do you remember your favorite toy from when you were four or who you really liked to play with when you were four? Probably not. And for children, it's just another thing that they like to do and another um, character in their lives. All right. That's fair. All right. So, 
As I was doing my research and, you know, you're asking around about imaginary friends, um, uh, a professor that um, I was talking to, she mentioned that children, they can, as you kind of said too, like co-events, um, imaginary worlds um, called paracosms. Mm. Uh, and I, with his own sets of rules and physics and all that. And I just found that really incredible because I remember when I was growing up and I would, I would play like, uh, like when... I would play with my Barbie dolls with my sister. It's like, there's this world, like, yes, this house is over here in this empty space. There's the garages over there and over there. So, and I really thought of it as like co-inventing a world. I just saw it as, as pretend play. So could you shed a bit of light on that? Yeah, so paracosms are fascinating. We had come across them a little bit when we were doing research on imaginary friends because sometimes children would mention it. and we thought that that probably wasn't very common that children did that but then that's what they used to think about imaginary friends so um we decided a few years ago so um it's been a few years now since we published this work we wanted to see well how often do children have um paracosms and what are they like and are they associated with having imaginary friend all these questions it, it started with a case study that we did with two children, uh, actually four children, two boys uh, that had Abixia and Rontuia, and two girls that had uh, uh, Chipaki and, and Chekrix. And those were the names of the paracosms. And so for example, um, Abixia was a world set in the 1940s on a foreign, uh, faraway planet. Uh, it was inhabited by soldier cats. Uh, it had a ho horse as the god, a horse named Ot, so carrots were a sacred kind of food. It was, um, had, uh, Swiss army knives were sacred because this boy was really into Swiss army knives. So they would do pilgrimages to Switzerland trying to use, they, because they were set in the 1940s, they didn't have the capacity for interplanetary travel, so they would coordinate with Rontuia where they were set in the future and they actually did have interplanetary travel but they would so they do pilgrimages to Switzerland to bring Swiss army knives back to Abixia so and to, well it just goes on and on and on they had they had a history and a geography and um, all kinds of tools and the kinds of cars they drove and what they wore and and they're all cats <laughs> <laughs> so it, it can be extremely elaborated and go on for years because children really enjoy this and and it's a social often a social activity so these uh, so these boys did this together and actually with some other children as well and the two girls who had uh, Chapaki and Cetrix they also they would get on the phone and and just talk really intently with each other and um, the parents would say it's like they're talking about you know, the world events or something there, you know, it's hilarious really, but they, um, we've just, so we wanted to see how common is it. And so we uh, interviewed um, like 170 some kids and we found that about 17% of children had something like a paracause in their lives. Some of them actually more than that had something that we didn't think was quite elaborated enough, but the ones that were incredibly elaborated, we call paracosms. And so we thought it was fairly common for these kids to have um, imaginary worlds. And they would th be things like, one one was uh, Vera, Vera Sai. So Vera was the queen of Vera Sai. Oh, okay. The child had probably heard Versailles and, you know, like the word, the uh, named Vera so and that was a very elaborated one and there's just lots of them and so 
it's pretty fascinating. So we published that work a few years ago, showing that it's more common than you think, and it's associated with um, creativity, um, being able to tell a good story, actually, the kind of creativity mm -hmm. that we look at. But I know, I'm curious, so about you, you said that you had lots of imaginary friends, and clearly you remember them, right? Yeah. And and that with the Barbie dolls, you created a world. Who were, you, were your imaginary friends? Um, my imaginary, well, like I said, okay, and people are probably going to judge me listening to this. Yeah, they were like mostly anime characters. <laughs> Okay. And so, like, just animes that I watched, uh, watching up, like um, Inuyasha, Yu Yu Hakusho. So I pick my favorite character from each show, and like, whenever I'm in a situation where I feel like I'm out of my depth, or you know, just anxious or nervous, they'll be there to be like, you know, we will, we will f up anybody that tries to mess with you. So it was kind of like, you know, a backup gang. I felt like yeah. I was part of a cool crew. Yeah. So yeah. So lots of times, imaginary friends are based on something that you've read or or seen but it becomes your own like so for example if if children told us that their imaginary friend was harry potter we would want to know okay so does the child just really enjoy harry potter and reads that a lot or is, has harry potter become a personal friend that they interact with and that they sort of in, um extend the fantasy so there's something mm -hmm. they're adding to it and it sounds like that's what you did it also sounded like you were talking in the present tense do you still interact with your imaginary friends? <laughs> <laughs> no, not not as much as i used to back in the day but i definitely had imaginary friends um quite quite to uh, an older age actually maybe i'm trying to think what age maybe to the age 15 yeah. 15 16 around that age and then mm -hmm. after that i was like okay um, i i can hang i can handle this now guys it's okay well some some last forever like Ag agatha christie had imagining friends that she wrote about in her autobiography that she still enjoyed thinking about interacting with at age 70. oh so, yeah and they were not the characters in her novels i mean the the characters in her novels she felt like she probably she wished she hadn't made them so old. She got stuck with <laughs> Marvel for, you know. <laughs> but her imaginary friends were a series of girls that she thought about and interacted with a lot and with a lot of affection. And it's she talked about that in in her autobiography. Um, Paul Taylor of the Paul Taylor Dance Company also had an imaginary friend that came to him when he was young. His name was Paul Tassett, PhD. And Paul Tassett stayed with Paul Taylor throughout his life. And was often um, even given roles in the um, and and thanked in the, uh, for some of the choreography <laughs> that um, that Paul Taylor uh, was known for. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, they can last a long time. That's pretty cool. And um, just to this is a, a random thing that I added on to it when you were um, talking about this interesting imaginary planet of soldier cats, which I'm very jealous of. Um, <laughs> I, I also kind of brought to mind, you know, the invention of like uh, fictional languages like Klingon. Would that be considered like a, a paracosm as well? Well, it, it, you sort of you're sort of thinking about writing fiction in a way, you know, mm -hmm. um, and writing fiction is, I think, a very imaginative activity that you can think of as being sort of like having a paragosm, but it's not so personal, although it can be. We were interested in the relationship between writing fiction and 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 fictional characters, having you know the relationship you have with a fictional character if you're an author and and say you're writing about that character a lot, like 
like Sue Grafton writing about Kinsey Milhone in her A is in her Alphabet Detective series. What kind of relationship does Sue Grafton have with um, Kinsey Milhone? Is it a personal relationship? Um, so, so that you're getting into this whole issue of all the stuff that people do when they're writing fiction, how that's related to what children do in their imaginative play. And I think there's uh, some interesting connections. And people do sometimes, not always, but sometimes develop personal relationships with the characters in their novels. So for example, Sue Grafton uh, clearly did with Kinsey Milhone. We interviewed her asking her about this and she would talk about how Kinsey would sometimes be there with her while she was writing and often egging her on, trying to get her to do, do something in the novel that she didn't want to do. So she said in a, the interview that sometimes she had to write it the way Kinsey wanted wanted her to, and then come back later and change it when Kinsey wasn't around. I mean, that's, it's a strange phenomenon that, that can develop about when you constantly are thinking about an imaginary character. Okay, I didn't think there were so many factors to take into consideration regarding imaginary friends, but uh, Dr. Taylor had so many fascinating observations to share. So that is why I'm making this Poco Ponders a two-part episode. So join us for Poco Ponders Imaginary Friends Part 2 to hear more about what Dr. Taylor has to say about imaginary friends in adulthood, the difference between imaginary friends and hallucinations, and what imaginary friends could look like in the future. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Uh, for the Saltwire Network, I'm Sarah Poco. See you next time.